If you'll turn in your Bibles to Jonah, the third chapter. The last time I spoke to you on a Wednesday night, we were continuing the Minor Prophet series. And we've reached one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament among the minor prophets. He does not have a minor message. And as we said when we began speaking about Jonah, the minor prophet, this is very significant because Jesus himself uses Jonah as an example of and a sign, if you will, that's what Jesus called it, of what he was going to do. As Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So we don't have the option to think, well, this is just like some kind of fable. We don't have that option. It is not a fable. This man was literally in the belly of the whale, which he described as the belly of hell, for three days and three nights. And when we left off last time, we were at the end of Jonah, the second chapter, and we left a a very ugly sight, a real pretty picture here of Jonah being vomited up on the seashore. And we don't know how far the ship had gotten when Jonah fled away from the presence of the Lord going to Tarshish. It was somewhere out in the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jonah headed in the opposite direction. Don't ever forget that the Lord, if he wants you somewhere, he's going to get you there. (laughs) That's a great eternal lesson that all of God's children that he wants with him in heaven, they shall get there. They shall be there because the Lord's going to make sure. And in this timely sense, if in some circumstances, sometimes the Lord just leaves his people that are disobedient to their ways. But in this circumstance, the Lord wanted Jonah to be in the other direction when he'd gone off in the opposite direction and he has gotten him there. All the while Jonah was in the belly of hell, in the belly of that whale, that whale is working its way back towards the coastline where Jonah is going to go in the direction that God told him initially to go. I want you to think about the long suffering of God as we consider Jonah graduates from whale school. He graduates and Jonah goes to work. That's kind of the pattern of what you do when you graduate from high school, you graduate from college, it's time to go to work. And here's Jonah graduating from whale school and he's going to work. God gets him where he wants him to be. So we pick up in Jonah the third chapter after we see Jonah has been vomited up on the land. Now I I have a little sense of humor about me. used to be a lot better than it is nowadays. No amens please, Brother Jim. (laughs) But I, I can just picture, it's almost humorous when you see Jonah laying there with the vomit of a whale all over him and seaweed wrapped around him and I could just see him, you know, blowing out whatever's on his face from his mouth and trying to get to breathe again, pulling that seaweed off of his face and tossing it and he's just laying there thinking, what just happened to me? He knows what just happened to him. And the Lord says in chapter 3, it comes again unto Jonah the second time and he says, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. You know, when the Lord came to him in the first verse, first and second verse of chapter one, he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And here the Lord says, arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. You don't say anything other than what I tell you to say. <laughs> and so it'd be great, Brother Luke, if the Lord would do that for us every Sunday. Say exactly what I tell you to say, but it just doesn't work that way in the New Testament. 
There's no prophets like Jonah around anymore. I'm not Jonah, Brother Luke, Brother, Brother Neil, any brother. We're not Jonah. There's nothing like that around anymore where the Lord infuses him with his word. And he, it's literally, in a sense, it's like Jonah is the puppet of the Lord speaking what God tells him to say. And same thing you could say about these other inspired writers where the Holy Ghost just took them and put in them his words. Okay? So he says, preach to them what I bid thee. So Jonah has rebelled against God. He's gone to whale school. He's gotten his diploma. He's been vomited up on the land. And now what does he do with his degree? What does Jonah do with his degree? I remember, I think it was in the 80s, there was an advertisement on TV about education. It was something like this. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> well, I say to you, a degree like Jonah got is a terrible thing to waste. The salvation that God has given to you and to me, it is a terrible thing to waste on riotous living and on selfishness and jealousy and all the different things that, that afflict us and tempt us. It is a terrible thing to waste what God has given us. And we're running out of time. Every day the clock is ticking. You young guys think, well, that, he, that doesn't apply to me. Oh my goodness, it does apply to you. <laughs> Your clock is ticking just like mine's ticking. I'm just a little older than you are, okay? What does Jonah do with the degree? And you can certainly say he earned it. What does Jonah do with the degree that he got in the belly of the whale in whale school? He gets up and he goes to Nineveh. Now, I always like to think about it like this, that when Jonah gets up and goes to Nineveh, it doesn't say he went to the local place to shower off or get a bath or, you know, clean himself up. I, I want to think that he got up and he scooted, you know, Regardless of how bad he smelled like the insides of a whale, regardless of how tired he was or, or how bad he felt, he scoots towards Nineveh. Now, I believe that he had a pretty good distance to go. I think based on where Nineveh was and the bodies of waters or how they were located, I could be wrong about that, but I think he had to travel a good ways. So here he goes. This man swallowed about the whale. He is doing what God tells him to do. What does he do? with his degree. Jonah graduates and he goes to work. Now it is of note to look at what it, God says in verse 2. He says, arise, go into Nineveh, that great city. If you look in chapter 4, in verse 11 of the final verse there, he says, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city? I want you to notice the regard that God had for the greatness, and the largeness of the city of Nineveh. And I believe the same thing could be said for many great cities today. Years and years ago, whenever Brother David and Crawford and I made our first journey to Africa and we visited with Brother Obey and so forth, we flew through the United Arab Emirates. And of course, the main thing you notice about the UAE when you're flying in or if you're there is that great tower that's there. It's, it's just amazing how that's the highest tower in the world. It's been the subject of, of several movies, and you may have seen pictures of it. But it is astonishing to see that part of that great city. You think about the great cities of the United States of America, you know, New York City, Los Angeles. Many of you have been to some of those cities. San Francisco, I mean, just great, huge pla uh, urban places where there's so many people. You know, God has regard for the great cities of this world. And it doesn't mean that He is pleased with them. He was not pleased with Nineveh. But we sometimes think, well, you know, 
God just doesn't see all the crime and the child abuse and the terrible things that go on in these great cities. Oh, I beg to differ. Nothing escapes the eyes of God. And the crimes and the abuse, yes, child abuse, and the different things that were going in this city here of Nineveh, the Lord had regard to what was going on there. The cry of that city, like Sodom and Gomorrah, had come up before the Lord. Whose cry do you think that was? It could have been any number of things. It could have been the cry of victims of crimes. But I can practically assure you that at least it was the cry of the abused children that came up before the Lord. And if you think for one second that we're not living in times where the cry of neglected and abused children is not coming up before the Lord, I assure you we are. I never really fully comprehended how the neglect and abuse of children would come back on the rise, if you will, in the form that it is today with the, the gender confusion and the surgeries and gender reassignment surgeries and all of that kind of craziness that's out there that just makes you go, what? <laughs> you know, I even heard there was, a, uh, there was a place where a four-year-old was allowed to choose, you know, what they would be referred to, male or female. A, a little four-year-old boy, I believe it was. Now, let me just tell you, without question, allowing that to go on and not speaking up in defense of the innocence and the helpless like that, it is abuse. It is abuse without question. You want to know how the signs and seasons of the Word of God are fulfilled in our times? Before our very eyes, you are seeing the rise of the abuse of children. It is abusing a child to let them choose their gender. It is abusing God's Word, of course, to think that a person could, ha could do that. So just be very clear. So you can see how we're connected to a place like Nineveh. God has regard and sees that type of abuse. And He recognizes how it's, a, it's something that offends Him. You see? But you never dream that something so subtle as that design of Satan about gender confusion, gender reassignment, gender surgeries, reassignment surgeries, and things like that, you think, well, <laughs> you know, that anybody in their right mind could see how foolish and sinful and wrong that is. But at its root, it is the neglect of children. And that's exactly the cry that was coming up before the Lord in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. The children were being abused and neglected. In the days of Nineveh, you'll see God say that. Are there not 600,000 down in Nineveh that don't know their right hand from their left hand? Who doesn't know their right hand from their left hand? It's children. See? You learn very quickly, children, what you're right, which, if you're right-handed or left-handed or which is right and which is left. But you understand God is saying, I have regard to the abuse of children that's coming up before me. And we are rapidly, rapidly moving in that direction. But listen, it's not gloom and doom. When those kind of things start happening, just lift up your head for your redemption draws nigh. And look at these examples like Nineveh where God has regard to what's going on there and He sends someone to help with it. Now, it's safe to say that the Lord didn't form a congressional committee and elect someone to office to go and address these issues, did He? He sent a preacher. That is, that's God's pattern. 
You say, what's going to save America? The preaching of the gospel, if anything does. It's going to be a return to the truth of the Word of God. What's going to save people from gender confusion? What's going to save uh, all the finger pointing? What's going to save the political scene? If anything gets saved and spared, it's going to be the preaching of the gospel. (laughs) And it's going to be folks like you and me embracing the teachings of the Word of God, not being afraid to share it in a loving way. You've heard me say very often recently, if you don't have a loving way about you, then don't even begin to share it. (laughs) Because it won't do any good. Okay? In a loving way, sharing these truths. You say, where do I start? You start with your family. This is that time where you have to instruct your family from the Word of God. This is what God's Word said. And it's it's bizarre that you have to instruct some of these things. This is right. This is wrong. This is male. This is female. This is marriage. This is not. So forth and so on. The list goes on. That's the same kind of time that, that Jonah was living in. God sends a preacher, a guy who graduated from whale school. He says, arise, go to the city, that great city, and preach unto it. So Jonah arose. Verse 3, he went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city. There's that phrase again, great city. Of three days journey. Now there's been a lot of speculation about what that means. I want to tell you what I think it means. It is believed in archaeological studies they have been able to deduce how big the city was just from archaeological digs and and such. Some people have said, well, it took three days to walk across the city. That's possible. That's possible. That's a huge city. (laughs) But it's, it's more likely that the wall around the city they think was about 50 to 60 miles. You think about that. And contained within that wall was the city proper. And then further within the city would have been, you know, the king's palace and so forth. So it is believed that I believe that Jonah got on that wall and he walked around the city and it took him three days to go around the circumference of the city on that wall. And the whole time that he's going, as he goes, it says that he cried, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not a very happy message, is it? (laughs) 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The word overthrown right there is used in other places like in Isaiah 13 and 19, it refers to God overthrowing a city like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is going to rain fire and brimstone on the city if there's not some kind of change in the way the city is going about its normal lifestyle, conducting its you know, business. So the fireworks show is coming. And Jonah, and sadly, I'll give you a little foreshadowing, he can't wait you know, for the fireworks show. That's how mean-spirited he is. Now, let me just say... If God could use Jonah to do what he does right here, Jonah putting to use this degree that he's earned in whale school, if God could use a mean-spirited, hard-hearted guy like Jonah, I promise you he can use you. (laughs) This guy, you won't find any more mean-spirited guy than Jonah. And look what God does. Look at what happens with him using somebody like this. It's amazing. So Jonah goes around, I believe, around the city, the circumference of the city, and he's preaching 40 days and it's over. The city's going to be destroyed. He began to enter the city a day's journey and he cried, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. There's been a lot of speculation about that too. Some people have said, well, every person in that city must have been a child of God. Well, I'm not saying that's impossible. I mean, that that could be possible. I don't think it's likely. (laughs) But 
it's, it's interesting to see that even if everyone, if there was somebody in their nature that, that didn't have the Spirit of God in their heart and they heard somebody saying, the city's about to be destroyed, just out of fear of destruction, they could stop doing what they're doing, you see? Just out of fear of destruction. But the children of God in this city, you can rest assured that the belief that they had, as you will see the king himself as a believer, they are having a belief towards Jehovah God, the Elohim, Jehovah, God, Jehovah, okay? So I don't know if it means everybody in the city was a child of God. I don't really think that. It could mean that everybody turned from their wickedness because they realized they were either afraid of destruction or they respected God. But I can assure you that the children of God in this city, the belief that they had was a result of the Spirit of God being in them. So, you know, when, when you think about our preaching, I don't know who all of God's children are, so I preach to everybody that I can. You see? I believe I'm talking to a room full of God's children tonight. But when I go out and visit with people and interact with people or go to Africa and preach or other places, I don't know everybody there. I, and I don't know, I can't say, well, this person's a child of God, I'm only going to preach to them. God didn't call us to figure out who the children of God are. He calls upon us as preachers to preach to whoever comes across our path. But only the children of God that cross our path will respond in a way that is a spiritual response. Because see, they have the Spirit of God in them. So here we have an, an amazing instance of national repentance. <laughs> Aren't we praying for that? How many times you hear somebody quote from 2 Chronicles 7, you know, if my people that hear my voice will turn from their wicked ways and so forth and so on. We all desire that. But the problem is you can't get it in a natural way. It can't be a natural thing. And I know you're probably thinking, just like I was thinking reading this, you know, what would happen if Jonah showed up today? First of all, he'd probably be facing a lot of lawsuits. <laughs> but what would happen if Jonah showed up today, a Jonah type, and said, 40 days, the United States of America will be overthrown. <laughs> now, we know that's not going to happen in the sense of a prophet of the Old Testament showing up and doing that, okay? But let me just say this. When Elijah preached and the nation turned, whenever he faced down the prophets of Baal, Jezebel's crew, and the nation said, the Lord, He is God, it was said of Elijah that there would be one that would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that man was John the Baptist. You know, when he came, people were saying, is this him? Is this really him? Is this really John? You know what happened to John the Baptist, right? The first Baptist got his head cut off because of politics. All right? So you can't script it and say, well, every time a Jonah shows up or every time an Elijah shows up or every time a John the Baptist shows up, it's going to go this way. You just can't script that. Who would have ever scripted that the, practically the, the greatest writer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, would have been Saul of Tarsus and killing Christians? Who could have scripted that? You see, God in His, in his infinite wisdom and mercy and sovereignty, you know, He's not a tame lion, as we say all the time, quoting from C.S. Lewis about Aslan. He can do it however He pleases. He can raise up a man out of the belly of a whale and send him over there and preach and the whole nation repents. And then he can raise up the greatest of all the prophets of the Old Testament. Are you with me? John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he gets his head cut off. Is God any less powerful? Is God any less tame than he was? No, God can do whatever he pleases. That ought to give us hope. 
Because we don't know that in the mind of God, we might see a national repentance. But it's not going to come from a congressional committee. It's not going to come from Matthew McConaughey. who I like him as an actor. It's not going to come from Matthew McConaughey going and lobbying congressmen to put more controls on guns. Every time I read that, I think they're missing the point. This isn't about gun violence. It's about family violence is what it is. It's about the breakdown of the family. It's about young men. Go and study those men. Go and study them. I have. And you will find commonalities among all of them with breakdowns of the home. Every single one. It's a family issue. Wouldn't it be great for turn the TV on and you see President Joe Biden come on air and say, I've got a message for the nation tonight like you're going to see this guy do right here in just a minute. I'm calling on a time of fasting and prayer. We need fasting and prayer. I don't care what denomination or what belief you are. Let's have fasting and prayer. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> Whatever the president, whoever it may be in there next time or whoever's been there in the past, when's the last time we heard something like that? You see, God has a different way of thinking towards repentance. It's not going to come from framing some law and passing some law. It's going to come with the hearts of men confessing their sin before God and say, God, have mercy upon me. That's what happened in Nineveh. The people believed God and they proclaimed a fast. I think this is talking about what the king does. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them, for word came unto the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. Listen to this now. Just picture a president or a dictator or some great head of state somewhere. You know, the Queen of England. You know, just wherever, you, whatever part of the world, the continents or whatever. Just think of the great heads of state. And here, this man's one of the greatest heads of state that has ever existed. You know why? Because he humbled himself. You know, as bad as Nebuchadnezzar got in the days of Daniel, another one of the uh, prophets that we'll look at him, as bad as Nebuchadnezzar got, you think about after he was humbled out there in the field, what did he do? He confessed and praised God. To me, that's one of the greatest leaders that has ever existed. These men who would humble themselves. It says that he, in verse 5, it says he arose from his throne. So he literally got up off of his throne, his royal and regal splendor there, as he sat on this great throne that was no doubt probably overlaid with gold and encrusted with jewels. He got up off of his throne and he laid his kingly robe from him, which was probably purple because that was a kingly color. He lays this off of him and it says he covered himself with sackcloth. Now, ladies, you're never going to go to Midtown Village or the Summit and find the sackcloth store. It's never going to be there because sackcloth is uncomfortable. It's like John the Baptist wore camel's hair. Elijah also wore camel's hair. Camel's hair is rough and coarse. And from what, the best I can tell in studying it, the camel hair was turned inside rather than outside, you know, because that's the most uncomfortable that it could be. The camel's hair was a symbol of repentance. The sackcloth is a symbol of repentance. I remember my grandmother telling me about making clothes out of the sacks that they would get for feed. Now, I felt a few of those sacks and they wouldn't be that bad you know, for clothing. I mean, it wasn't horrible. It wouldn't be super comfortable, but again, you're not ever going to find a, a, probably a sack store either, you know, to make where they're making clothes out of sacks. But sackcloth was a symbol of contriteness or humility. The, the king takes his robe off 
And he takes this uncomfortable clothing of sackcloth and he puts it, drapes it over himself. And you know what the people do? They follow his lead. You know, that happens a lot. If, if you've got a godly man or woman as a head of state and they are humble and they are contrite and they do something like this right here, a lot of times, a lot of God's people will follow that type of lead. You think about the heads of state throughout the world and even in our own country in the last many years, all the finger pointing and the trouble and the anguish and the, the fussing that goes on. Here's a great man right here because he humbled himself. And listen, he heard, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He heard eight words. He heard eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It took eight words to prompt this king to get up off of his throne, take his robe off, and cover himself with sackcloth. But he's not through yet. It says he sat in ashes. <laughs> you remember a year or so ago, I preached a message. We were doing the My Servant series. And I tell you, aside from Jesus, my favorite My Servant that I studied was Job. And one of the sermons that I preached was called Down in the Ash Pile. Because that's where Job wound up after he had lost everything. Job, it says he rent his mantle and he went down and he sat in the ash pile. And you think about the ash pile. <laughs> that, that's where you take stuff and you just burn it. And it's just, I mean, who, when's the last time you got up after camping out in the woods and you thought, well, you know what? I think I'll just sit in the ashes of the campfire. That's, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Number one, it'd be kind of hot and it might scald you, but just imagine it had all cooled off and there were no there were no embers left. And it's just ashes there. Who in the world said, well, I, I really want to sit in this ash pile. <laughs> now, I do think there's another sermon in there somewhere, Brother Luke, uh, that maybe you or me have preached sometime, but you know where you get soap from, don't you? It comes from ashes. <laughs> so I think there's some further symbolism there that once you get down in that ash pile, you're asking God to cleanse you. Lord, make me clean because that's where soap comes from. But you find this king who had been sitting on his throne and now he's down sitting in the midst of the ashes from a fire. And most of the time, I think I shared this whenever we spoke about my servant Job. Most of the time, what do you find the ash pile being a result of? It's usually the garbage. You know, where you're burning up stuff that you don't need. Oh, don't get me started. If, we, if Sister Tracy goes on the night, if you look in our... I shouldn't even say this. She's going to be so upset with me. There's a place in our house where you can go and look and there's stuff stored. You all have it, and yours is a disaster too, so don't be a hypocrite. But if Sister Tracy gave me the word, I'd have me a time and a bonfire tonight. What can go? And we take it. That's what I do when it's time to get something. She said, well, let's take it to Salvation Army. That's a lot of trouble. I can't lift anything right now, so why don't we just burn it? <laughs> you know, this old piece of furniture that's so rickety, it's about to fall apart. Now, we don't have any of that. Some of y'all do. You, you need to admit it. <laughs> you know, let's don't try to sell it or fix it up or get somebody to let it tear any longer. Let's just take it out and let's burn it. And I know that my dear wife and sister Holly are sitting there thinking right now, that's what we ought to do with that old rickety podium out there right now. Yeah, he's a hypocrite. No, I know how y'all think. <laughs> yeah, it, it ought to be burnt, but it came out of the old church. Now there's a reason to keep it, okay? It came out of the old church up the road. There's a reason to keep it. But most of the stuff, don't get me started. Let's just go have a bonfire. Let's just burn it. Most of the time you find the ash pile as a result of the garbage and the refuse being burnt. Can you picture a president or a head of state, a dictator, a queen, a king? Where are you going? 
I'm going to find me an ash pile. I tell you what, that takes humility. We won't see a national revival without that type of humility. And I'm not just talking about out of Washington. I'm talking about in our hearts. Are we willing to go down into a nasty a place as an ash pile and sit and before the Lord and say, God, have mercy upon us? I tell you, child of grace, as far as our country goes, as far as we go as in individuals, that's where we are. That's where we need to be. <laughs> now, again, you may go find physically the ash pile. There's a couple of them in my house. You can find them and scrape up some ashes. But from a spiritual standpoint, when you go into your prayer closet and you shut that door, as Jesus said, and you look up in the heavens or you look down at the floor, you think about what God has done for you and how merciful He's been to you and how gracious He's been to you and look up and say, praise God, have mercy upon me. If we're saying anything other than have mercy upon me, then I don't think we understand grace because we don't deserve grace and we don't deserve mercy. And this king, this great head of state, he goes down into the ash pile. Can you see him sitting there with his sackcloth on and his servants probably standing around going, oh, what do we do? Oh my goodness, the king's in the ash pile. You know, the butler's standing there, the, the baker's standing there, the, the attendant's standing there. You know, what, what do we do? You know, if I was the king, I'd say, come on down in here with me. <laughs> the whole city, the whole nation repents. One of the greatest nations on the face of the earth, if not the greatest at that time. He arose, he laid his robe aside, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree. He's not finished yet. He's in the ash pile and he says, take this down and publish it through the city. By the decree of the king and the nobles saying, "Let listen to this now, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. If you were a shepherd, you were commanded by the order of the king, don't even take your sheep to the water. Now, I don't know if y'all, some of y'all lived on a farm. Some of you may still live on a farm. But a couple of the longest nights that you'd ever have on the farm, one was when we would dehorn cows. And it wasn't a very pretty sight either. Those cows would sit out there and, and bawl all night. Many of them still bleeding from having their horns cut. Of course, we cauterized them. We took care of them. We did what we were supposed to do. Don't report us to PETA, okay? But the other time, if you stayed at Grandmother McCool's house, you couldn't get any sleep. Whenever Dad, whenever we would separate the calves, it was time to, to wean them and take them away from the mamas. Man, you have never heard such a bawling. All, you know, 60 cows just all night long never stopped. And the calves over there, meh, I mean, it's just, a, it is just awful. You know, you might as well, even you stuff stuff in your ears, it doesn't do any good. It's going to keep you away. I, I feel sorry for Grandmother McCool through years of when we would do that. And she never complained. But if you, you imagine you don't give any water or feed to a cow or to a sheep or to a lamb. Don't give any water to them. What do you think they're going to do? They are going to bawl their brains out. I've seen them do it. And he ordered, don't even give food or water to the sheep or the cows or to yourself. It's major. <laughs> you think about, I'll throw my little pitch out there. You think about our animal-loving society that loves animals more than they love babies in the womb. You think about that. That right there alone would garner how many lawsuits that would try to make their way to the Supreme Court. 
You're abusing animals because you won't give them any food. You won't give them any water. I'm telling you, this was not abuse. This was a holy fast. A holy fast. He says, verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So not only did they deprive themselves and their animals of, of food and water, they found, as, uh, boy, I tell you what, the sackcloth store would have made a lot of money during this time, wouldn't it? So if you ever do see a sackcloth store, ladies, you can rest assured, buy it up because it's probably repentance coming. <laughs> so they get all this sackcloth, they put it on their, their animals even, and that probably made them cry out even worse. And he said, let them cry mightily unto God. He said, the people, now the animals obviously couldn't cry to God, but they were crying, they were bawling and braying and crying. But he said, cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. What an admission. And from the violence that is in their hands. This was a violent city. It was a crime-filled city. It was a child-abusing city. It was a sodomite city. Everything that you can imagine that is vulgar or profane in the eyes of God was going on in this city. And then the, the king says, who can tell if God will turn and repent? I take a whole other message to explain right there. But all I can tell you is this, that in the mind and purpose of God, whenever He calls upon people to repent, and they do, sometimes God spares them from experiencing the worst that they could experience. He says, who can tell if God... That's Elohim, by the way. This isn't just Baal or some false god. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? These men were saying, we're dead men. We need to call upon God and be spared. You see? <laughs> they believed. They fasted. And the king called upon them to turn or draw back, repent, or put away, or cut away even from the violence that was in their hands. That word violence means unjust gain, cruel damage. The root of the word means to maltreat or to mistreat. This was a, quite a proclamation. Let me share with you real quick a proclamation that was announced in our nation many, many years ago. President Ronald Reagan, Thanksgiving Day, 1986. Perhaps no custom reveals our character as a nation so clearly as our celebration of Thanksgiving Day. Rooted deeply in our Judeo-Christian heritage, the practice of offering Thanksgiving underscores our unshakable belief in God as the foundation of our nation and our firm reliance upon Him from whom all blessings flow. President Harry Truman, proclamation from 1951. We are profoundly grateful for the blessings bestowed upon us, the preservation of our freedoms so dearly bought and so highly prized, our opportunities for human welfare and happiness so limitless in their scope, our material prosperity so far surpassing that of earlier years, and our private spiritual blessings so deeply cherished by all. For these we offer fervent thanks to God. And one more. We have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. My goodness, what words. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Abraham Lincoln, 1863. <laughs> we 
Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear the heads of the states of this world? Now, the heads of state are not going to save the world, okay? But wouldn't it be wonderful to hear that type of refreshing language coming from the heads of state? Instead of constantly blaming the wrong thing and constantly missing the mark. Let me tell you, based on what I read here in Nineveh, it's possible. Now, do you think it's going to come from some national movement? Or do you think God's going to follow the pattern that He's always followed and pursuant to the preaching of the truth bring nations to their knees in repentance? I think I'm going to follow God's pattern and keep preaching the Word of God. Verse 10, and we close. And God saw their works. They didn't just give lip service. I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to be a good girl. He saw what they did, that they turned from their violence and they turned from their evil and they stopped, they stopped being mean and ugly and they were nice to each other and they stopped taking advantage of people and they stopped backstabbing people. They began to do good things and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil. Now that word evil doesn't mean sin, it means trouble. Oh, Nineveh was going to have trouble in about 40 days. The trouble was going to be the Lord's going to rain fire and brimstone on them. That's not sin. That's God's judgment. See, sometimes evil in the Word of God is talking about God's judgment. Trouble that comes. And it's not ever sin when it comes to God. That's how you can know. If evil is in relation, it's mentioned in relation to God, it doesn't have anything to do with sin. He returned from that trouble that He was going to bring upon them that He said He would do unto them, and He did it not. From the standpoint of Jonah earning his diploma, getting out of whale school and going to work, it's pretty successful, isn't it? An entire nation. How'd you like those statistics, Brother Luke? (laughs) That would just be so amazing to see, based on the preaching of one man, an entire nation came to its knees. He says it's impossible. It happened here. When God's in the matter, as God says, nothing is impossible. (laughs) So keep praying for repentance. How does it start? It starts with you. It starts in the heart. I'm repenting. I'm turning from my sin. I'm going to do good works instead of bad. And pray for your leaders. And don't be afraid to share the truth and love with those that are close to you, those that you're acquainted with. Don't be afraid to do that because you never know. Jonah did some good work here, didn't he? And God blessed the labors that he engaged in. And I wish I could tell you it's got a good ending. But next time we go into chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And he was angry. That doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> I don't hope, Brother Luke, that we'd be jumping up and down, having a celebration, having a party, rejoicing, praising God in song. I mean, hooping it up and hollering. And Jonah is displeased and angry. We'll pick up there next time.